For copyright reasons, music played during the program has been excluded from this podcast. Hornsby and Karingai, this is Triple H News Desk with James Elton Pym and Declan Gooch. Good morning and welcome to Triple H News Desk. I'm Declan Gooch. And I'm James Elton Pym. Thank you for joining us. On the program today, a group of elderly North Taramara men hatching plans for political power at the next state election. Is it time Australia's ageing population had a direct line to Canberra? And Lindfield residents concerned that radiation from new underground power cables could be putting their health at risk. But are their fears legitimate? Also, a sports hall on Milson Island that's won an award for architecture from the International Olympic Committee. Later in the program, we talk to Matthias Fuchs, who will spend 11 days and 10 nights flying as a Qantas passenger to raise funds for his child with cystic fibrosis. And a volunteer police worker from Karingai in the running for a Rotary Police Officer of the Year Award. To get in contact, email newsdesk at triplehfm.com.au. That's newsdesk at triplehfm.com.au. You can also like our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash triplehnewsdesk to hear this program again whenever you like. Welcome to the program. Karingai businesses were recognised last week at the Better Business Awards ceremony, highlighting local shop owners who've committed to sustainability. Eastern Road Quality Meats of Taramara took out the top award out of around 250 businesses who are members of the Better Business Partnership, which takes in Karingai, Lane Cove, North Sydney and Willoughby council areas. The owner of Eastern Road Quality Meats, Alan Walden, raises and butchers the animals on his farm in rural New South Wales. He also installs solar panels and sources local, organic, chemical-free and free-range products for sale. His business has donated sustainably to schools and charities and has supported underprivileged schools in Nepal. Pablo and Rusty's Coffee Roasters at Gordon took out the Sustainable Purchasing Award at the ceremony. Hornsby Council's pop-up shop at number 5 Coronation Street is continuing to bring artists and creative people to the Shire with new inhabitants from the Australian Textile Arts and Surface Designer Association taking up residence this week. Thirteen contributing artists have covered the walls with clothing, notebooks and jewellery as part of the Council's Festival of the Arts. The focus is on the creative use of textiles. Along with the display, workshops and classes will be held to teach members of the public how to create their own works. The association will occupy number five until November 30. Two men were tracked down by a police dog in a dramatic search at a Macquarie, uh, Macquarie Park construction site on Monday. Eastwood police were alerted to two trespassers at about 1am and asked for assistance from the dog unit. A perimeter was set up and a police dog was sent in to search the site. A short time later, a 22-year-old from Ramsgate was arrested. The dog kept searching and found a second man who kicked the dog and was bitten on his right leg. This man, who was a 22-year-old from Woolaware, was taken to Ride Hospital. Police have charged the first man with trespass. Anybody with information should contact Crime Stoppers on 1800 000. That's 1800 000. It's been some time since we've had a party by seniors for seniors in New South Wales. At the Landings Retirement Village in North Taramara, three men are gearing up to contest the 2015 state election. But what do they stand for and what chance do they have? James Elton Pym finds out. The federal election in September saw the motoring enthusiasts and sport lovers of Australia get direct representation in the Senate. But there's a much larger demographic that until now didn't have a specific party to vote for. Two weeks ago, three men in a retirement village in North Taramara changed that, forming the Seniors United New South Wales Party. 
they hope to bring the fight in the 2015 New South Wales state election. It's the first dedicated seniors party since Grey Power back in the 1980s. Neil Smith, one of the founders, says it's a no-brainer. Why do you think it's been a couple of decades since we've last had a seniors party in New South Wales? It puzzled Frank and Brian, Nick and I um, when we contemplated that because it's so obvious that there's a need. Um, and again, I can only say that the response that we're getting is from people who are saying, why didn't this happen before? So there's a movement, and it's a strong movement, that is, uh, we believe, forthcoming out of all this. The group needs 750 official members to be recognised by the Electoral Commission. In just two weeks, they're already halfway there. Mr Smith says protections for seniors' rights have been gradually eroded. All it takes for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. And we have, from our experience, found that we have a need to address the, um, the lack of attention that uh, politicians and bureaucrats are paying to the needs of the seniors, and in particular the elderly, the elderly in care, the elderly in retirement villages, the elderly in residential parks, or just elderly per se. The party's mission statement is to fight for the over 50s across the board, but Mr Smith names a few policy priorities. One in particular, and that is palliative care, the lack of funding that government is giving for palliative care. Another important group are returned service people. Seniors United is reaching out for members through Navy and Air Force groups and say they're finding plenty. We have the ex-service uh, component. The ex-service have been neglected by the, uh, the nationals, the national parties, to index pensions. They have neglected that woefully now for the last almost decade. Mm. It's hardly fair when people lay down their lives as being a, uh, uh, a party ready to uh, uh, fight for your country and when you are dependent on a pension coming as a result of that, you need to be able to to live according to index. That's not the case. The federal government pay lip service to it, but they do not, unfortunately, follow through. It's not a bad time to be forming a seniors party with Australia's population ageing rapidly. Neil says that'll definitely help. It certainly will expand our, uh, our, our base of the, uh, the party uh, because the, the older you get, the more you realise that these things are uh, vitally important. For fellow founder Frank Fitzpatrick, the inspiration to form Seniors United came out of dissatisfaction with the work of the major parties. I guess it was a case of frustration. What are we going to do? What can we do? And uh, because we've seemed to have tried every other avenue. Third founder Ray Morris says setting up the party has been a big effort. The three men have spent a lot of time planning around the table in Neil's house. At the, at the moment, it seems that I'm down here every... As a matter of fact, my, my wife get, gave me a cake to bring down today to, 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 to provide lunch for everybody. <laughs> but it seems that I've, I've been um, uh, spending more and more time, and Frank particularly has been spending more, more and more time here um, over the last two weeks than he's ever mm. done before. He's, he's practically given up his golf. It's kind of like coming out of retirement a little bit. Absolutely. <laughs> Graham is a new member of the party. He was finishing off his paperwork when Newsdesk spoke to him. He's just turned 55 and decided to sign up when he saw an article in the Hornsby Advocate. Uh, I've worked for a couple of government departments, so uh, I've seen some 
overall unsavoury things go on as far as fairness and equity. Um, I've very recently turned 55, so seeing this story in the paper, it kind of all, all came together very quickly. Seniors United hope to have their 750 members by the end of November. James Elton Pym, Triple H News Desk. Your independent voice, News Desk on Triple H 100.1 FM. A natural water filter at Cherrybrook has finished being constructed, which should see water quality improve in the area. The council's operations manager, David Baharrell, describes the bioretention basin, as it's technically known, as a living sponge. It's a large mound of sand covered in special aquatic plants that sort pollutants out of the water. It's the first of five such basins the council hopes to build this year, provided tests on the Cherrybrook one prove that it works. The man who has been keeping Hornsby Park green for the last 44 years has retired. Richard Shields is well known amongst Hornsby residents. Most people who have visited the park have probably seen him. When Richard started working for the council, the Beatles were still together, but he says it feels like yesterday that he started on the job. Richard's flower displays were the highlights of the garden. He planted some 25,000 annuals twice a year. His colleagues say no one could plant as quickly and accurately as he could. Hornsby Mayor Steve Russell thanked Richard for his service and said he would be difficult to replace. An exhibition of artworks by local carers has opened at the Walla Robba Art and Community Centre to mark Carers Week. A morning tea was held to launch the exhibition, attended by carers including Sonia Perkovich, whose 11-year-old son is autistic. She said the carers' support group allowed her to get through the trauma of her son's diagnosis. The art is cathartic, giving carers an outlet from their often stressful day-to-day -day lives. To find your nearest carer support group, visit www.carersnsw.asn.au forward slash groups. The Hornsby Festival of the Arts is about to kick off and a series of talks by professional architects will be one of the highlights. The focus will be on local architecture, architecture and the discussions start with an introduction to the trade and how architects work on Sunday, November the 3rd. Then award-winning Thornley architect Robin Edmonston, a recipient of the prestigious Wilkinson Award for Residential Architecture, will discuss his plywood home and make the case for architecture as art on November the 10th. Finally, a discussion focused on the Walla Robba Arts and Cultural Centre and its history by Arcadia architect Rolf Crystal will be held on the 20th. The talks are free, but bookings are essential. Call 9847-6611. That's 9847-6611. Osgrid is preparing to lay down new electricity cables under the streets of East Linfield. A local residence group don't want that to happen, worried about the radiation causing cancer. They're meeting with Osgrid tomorrow to, to, to try to strike a bargain. Declan Gooch reports. A community action group in East Linfield is on the offensive against energy provider Osgrid over fears that high-voltage cables the company plans to lay under the suburb could give off harmful radiation. 132,000-volt underground cables will supply Artarman, Willoughby and North Sydney with power that they currently get from overhead lines. Brenda Davey is one of the action group's organisers. Our key concern is the impact of electromagnetic radiation, or ENR as it's called, on health. Um, you know, laying high-voltage cables even underground does not prevent exposure to radiation. Ms Davey says the radiation that this cabling may be able to give off is classified by the World Health Organisation as a carcinogen. This radiation has a link with childhood leukaemia in studies as well as other health issues. So, you know, you can imagine the community, um, in particular parents, are extremely concerned. Triple H News Desk contacted Osgrid for comment. However, they were not able to respond before this program went to air. Osgrid has previously told the North Shore Times that the radiation from the cabling is less than given off by common home wiring and appliances and by overhead low-voltage power lines. 
The next step for Ausgrid is allowing the community to review a report into the plan, called a review of environmental factors. This is expected to be made available in some way early next month. When that happens, Ms Davey and the East Linfield Action Group have a long list of requests. You know, this includes installing cables away from residential areas wherever possible. Um, and where it's not possible, uh, put shielding around the cables to reduce or eliminate radiation coming out of them. But so far, she's been disappointed with the lack of response. Frankly, we've held several meetings with Osgrid. Now, so far, Osgrid has not addressed these key concerns um, around, you know, roading away from our residential streets um, and shielding. So, you know, we continue to appeal to them to be good corporate citizens um, and work with us, you know, to look at eliminating this additional radiation uh, coming through a residential area. Osgrid agreed in July to review options for alternative routes, including through local parklands and a golf club. It remains to be seen if that is still on the table. Declan Gooch, Triple H News Desk. Triple H News Desk with James Elton Pym and Declan Gooch. A man has injured himself after trying to backflip off a ferry at Hetalong Wharf near the central coast just north of Hornsby Shire. At about 6.30 on Saturday, Brisbane Water Transport Command police officers responded to reports of intoxicated passengers aboard a ferry at the wharf. On the way to the incident, they had to stop at Etalong Beach, where paramedics were treating a 25-year-old man with head injuries. Police were, were told he tried to backflip from the top of the ferry into the water, but he hit his head on the boat's railing. The man was taken to Gosford Hospital for treatment for suspected facial injuries and head fractures. The police transport, command, uh, police transport commander, Max Mitchell, said alcohol was clearly a factor and reminded commuters that alcohol cannot be consumed while on public transport. And we'll bring you some music now. Coming right up after this break, our interview with Matthias Fuchs. What would it take for you to spend 11 days on a plane? And the local sports hall that's won an architectural award from the International Olympic Committee. And remember, you can email us at newsdesk at triplehfm.com.au. That's newsdesk at triplehfm.com.au. Like us on Facebook to hear this show and any separate segments whenever you want, as well as photos, updates and more. Facebook.com slash triplehnewsdesk. Now here's Skeletons by Stevie Wonder. A new sports hall on Milson Island has caught the eye of the International Olympic Committee picking up a prestigious architecture award, Declan Gooch reports. Residents living near the Hawkesbury's Milson Island often choose the place because of its serenity and its distance from the city and suburbs. But the tiny hamlet has been thrust under a global spotlight this week after the architect of the unassuming Milson Island Sport and Recreation Centre's Sports Hall won an international design prize. Architecture firm Alan Jack and Cottier took out a silver medal in the International Olympic Committee's Sports and Leisure Facilities Award. Michael Heenan is the CEO and principal of the firm and worked extensively on the building. Nelson Island is the most beautiful position in the middle of the Hawkesbury River, just up from the Mooney Mooney Bridge. And um, it, it's being such a beautiful site, it was important that quite a large building on an island in the middle of the river sat there very well. And so what I tried to do was build a building that was really in touch with nature. And so if you imagine a piece of bark stripped off a tree and turned upside down and propped off a couple of sticks... That was my inspiration uh, for the building. So a relatively simple building that sits in between the trees um, and is not visible from anywhere around it. The Sports and Recreation Centre is run by the New South Wales Government and the budget was tight. 
but that was a challenge relished by Mr Heenan. What you had to do was make sure that you were frugal with every decision so that nothing in the building doesn't contribute to the building somehow. So if the metal on the outside, which shelters the building, especially from fire, um, could contribute structurally and create some cost of cross-placing, that was calculated in. And he says there's no reason public architecture can't always look as striking or refined as any well-designed building. In this particular case, you know, on a budget of a brick and tin shed, uh, a beautiful building's come out that's been recognised around the world. And so I think we should be able to apply the same strategies to create good architecture for every project. The centre is often used by school children on camps, tackling rock climbing, sports and the high ropes course. But the out-of-the-way location threw up some unique challenges. Being out on an island, every piece of the building had to go out to the island on a barge. And the barge operators gave us very strict maximum lengths and maximum weights. And so steel is fantastic because you can have a portal frame that essentially you cut into pieces and when you bolt it back together again, it regains all of its strength. Other finalists for the award included the London Olympic handball venue and major outdoor stadia around the world. Hornsby State Liberal MP Matt Keane congratulated the firm on their win, which was the only Australian project to come out on top. He said the hall was superbly designed. For Mr Heenan, the magnitude has only just sunk in. I thought it was a, a, a step up, a significant step up, but when I was sitting in this gala venue in the middle of Cologne with the Vice President of the IOC and the head of the International Paralympic Committee and, and, and big wigs from sporting bodies around the world, um, and uh, it turned out to be quite a bigger deal than I thought. And I went into this very large exhibition centre full of all the facilities you can use in sports buildings and there in prominent position is a model of Milson Island. He says Australia is becoming an international design leader. Declan Gooch, Triple H News Desk. The best local news on radio. Triple H News Desk with James Elton Pym and Declan Gooch. When Matthias Fuchs found out his daughter was born with cystic fibrosis, he decided to fundraise with a group of other patients to help the Children's Hospital at Westmead pay for special equipment and train special doctors. But Matthias fundraises in an unusual way. In one week, he'll set off as a Qantas passenger and won't leave an airport for 11 days. James Elton Pym spoke to Mr Fuchs earlier in the week. Matthias Fuchs, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So firstly, this is quite a strange idea for a fundraiser. You've done it before. Where did it come from? Uh, look, my, my daughter was, was born with CF about 10 years ago, and uh, so a group of parents decided to sort of get together and see how we can fundraise in, in unique ways that, that didn't require overheads, and uh, so we all do our own little thing. And so in 2009, um, I did my first sort of... I had to come out with the idea of flying long haul because it's something I did... have done a lot of since I was a child and, and do a lot for work, so I thought, why not combine combine that with fundraising. Right. So in 2009 I approached the airline and, um, and they said, yeah, we'll, we'll do it. So when we talk about these really long flights, uh, we're talking about 11 days mm, uh, yeah. going airport to airport. Some people would think that's pretty horrific. Yeah, look, it's probably, probably like going to the dentist. You sort of forget the pain pretty shortly afterwards, you know. Um, no, look, it is... The last time I didn't actually... I wasn't, it wasn't that bad. You know, it took... Um, the last time was nine days. You sort of go up through ups and downs. Clearly, when your body is on the wrong time zone, it's quite tough. Yeah. But you don't get jet lag at the end because your your body really is not anywhere long enough to change. 
So when you get back home, you actually feel quite fine. Yeah, it must be kind of a surreal experience in a way, jumping between time zones, not knowing whether it's day or it night. Is, it is highly unusual that um, you're going to all these different places and you just, yeah, it is very, very strange. And so you have to sort of almost forget about where you are and time zone and just keep, just flow with the body. Like your body will, will think Sydney time. Yeah. And so I just, I, I, I support it yep. in that. And so I make sure I have breakfast when it's breakfast time in Sydney. And it's dinner time, I'll have, try and have a dinner and a glass of wine, even though I get some strange looks from people when they're having breakfast. <laughs> so that, that's important. Okay. So over that a huge amount of hours you've spent flying around, there must have been some horrible ones. Can you, can you recall a story of the worst flight you've had? Well, look, not, not so much in the, in the three challenges. I've had plenty of horrendous flights through general work time. Yeah. I mean, the worst one I can remember was from St. Louis to Los Angeles, it was a five-hour flight where the pilot had the no seat, the seatbelt sign on the entire flight, <laughs> and the plane was shaking, and I thought it was going to rip apart. And it doesn't help when there was a child behind me who was sort of cheering like it was a Luna Park ride, <laughs> and I was quite scared. <laughs> but uh, other than that, I haven't had really too many really bad ones. So oh, that's good. You know, obviously you get noisy ones at time me, and you know if the wrong person sits next to you can yeah. be a long flight. <laughs> right. Well, but, some of those legs to America or to Europe or whatever, if you've got the wrong passenger, it could be... Yeah, the wrong passenger um, can make it a very long flight. So I think, look, most most people who fly a lot these days, without being rude, they'll, you know, they'll make it pretty clear that they're not interested in a long conversation. So, yeah. you know, I think you'd be courteous, you sort of say g'day to the passenger next door, but they make it pretty clear that we're all here for our own private time and just leave it at that. <laughs> Yeah. Yes, your advice I remember in the in the Hornsby Advocate article, or in the North Shore Times article, I should say, was was not to talk to the people next to you. That must be coming from a, a experience. Yeah, and that, that that probably sounded a bit brutal, you know. But I think you know you can be civil, but without it can it makes it very tiring. If you've got someone that wants to talk the whole time, it can really tire you out. And a lot of people see this as the the one time in their lives now where they can actually get a bit of private time and they can have a bit of thinking time and. It, uh, over 11 days of chatting every day, you'd be at the end of your tether. Yeah. So I'll try to avoid that as much as I can. I guess on the other hand, 11 days with no talking would be a bit strange as well. Yeah, look, yes, exactly. And so I'll obviously make sure I still talk to my family, etc. when I get to the airports. Um, and, and the crew talk to me because they, they generally know what I'm doing because I'm wearing a sort of flying T-shirt so they, they know I'm doing something <laughs> usual. Qantas, the Qantas captains will know in advance what I'm doing. Right. So they, they tend to come down and visit for a chat because they, they generally get pretty bored themselves sometimes. <laughs> so, yeah. Right, I'm sure a lot of customers would be alarmed to know that the Qantas pilots are coming and talking to you in the middle of life. Oh, uh, well, I think luckily they, they do know generally there's three or four of them on long hauls. <laughs> Right. Yeah. yeah sure. <laughs> when when you're talking to fellow passengers and that you tell them why you're on there, what's what do they react like? Uh, it the most of them think, oh my goodness, how could you possibly do that for that long? Um, even the flight crew, you know, they just think, what you can? This is your you know eighth flight in a row because most of them sort of complain about one long haul flight or oh no, it's a, you know this is hard work. Yeah. So I think it puts it into into perspective for them a little bit. So yeah. they they all think it's pretty unusual how you can do that. People who are facing long flights might be quite interested to know what, it, what your coping strategies are as someone who's been through so many of these. What do you do to pass the time? Uh, look, I think mentally, you've you got you to first of all mentally adjust. I think you've you, you got to, you know, if I'm on a short flight, I'm, some, I'm keen to get off. But I think you've got to adjust yourself mentally to know that this is, this is going to be a long time on a plane. Yeah. Um, 
No, I just make sure I have everything ready and I need to go, so I'm not sort of fluffing about with my luggage, you know, uh-huh. I have my earplugs, my goggles ready to go. You know, I'll make sure I set time aside for movies, read uh-huh. books, um, rest when I can. I spend a lot of time watching the flight map, which is highly unusual. Most people yeah. find that reasonably boring. Mm. It does. I do stop when it goes over water because there's not much to see when it goes over water. But while it's on land, it's interesting. You look at some new places where it's flying over, and you know when you're flying over Kabul, you know you sort of think, "Oh, that's a bit unusual." But you, <laughs> they do fly over unusual places. <laughs> so a lot of people don't actually enjoy doing that because I think I don't want to know we're flying over Kabul. Looking through the list of countries you're going to, you're going to some pretty interesting places. You're going to the US, you're going to Santiago, but then you're not really going there, are you? No, is, not really going there at all. Is it no. a little bit hard to go to the airport and know that there's this fantastic place you might not have been to before and then just to leave again? Well, yes. I mean, luckily I had been to all those places, I mean, all those places I had been to. So it's, really? I don't feel like it's a, a Missy Allen too much, which is wow. good. Um, so, again, it's just a mental thing. Just, you know, I'm accepting the fact that I'm not going to get off and have the pizza at Brooklyn and New York. I'll be turning around an hour and a half later and flying back home again. <laughs> so um, the, the inspiration for all of this is, is your daughter, um, yep. Kristen, yep. who's 11, and she was born with CF. Yep. Um, did she sort of draw your attention to funding shortfalls in cystic fibrosis treatment more generally? I think it's more the, the hospital, the, the CF clinic that yep. sort of looks after these kids. They made that point very early on that, you know, with an extra three or four hundred grand a year, they could do so many more things. So they really are underfunded. The government funds them for the bare minimum. Then there's all these sort of different allied health and additional sort of research type work and machinery that is icing on the cake that that just helps with the level of service the clinic can give to these kids. Mm. So that's what we're aiming to do. Right. So it's interesting then that the hospital was so forthcoming with that information, just admitting to you that they weren't able to do as good a job as they might be able to. Yeah, absolutely. No, I'm mean, very open with that. I think it's not just sort of CF. I think it's many of the hospital units, whether it be the burns unit, whether it be the cancer unit, mm. you know, they all, they all do their own fundraising because they do have such limited funds from the government. The government funding pretty much does the, does the bare minimum. Yeah. But if they want any sort of additional type of services to make life a bit easier for people, yeah. um, you've got to go out and do it yourself. Yeah, so what are some of the things that, I mean, it might be hard to trace exactly where the money goes, but what are, what are some of the things that they've been able to fund as a result of your fundraising? Oh, look, I think oh, oh, my specific fundraising, well, for example, every year we fund, um, through a golf day we do, we fund a, a fellow, which is a, a, young, a young doctor that gets a 12-month contract, um, and this is where they, they do then their specialisation in CF. So that's been going for 10 years now. So we've sort of had 10, 10 years of these young doctors coming through. So 10 doctors? 10 doctors. And many of them have now you know, gone on to do great things. You know, many of them doing doctorates at CF. Um, one of them will, is now the sort of successor to become the next head of the CF unit. Um, so yeah, they, they all, so it makes it quite sustainable. And that's always an aim I try to have is that when we, whatever we raise funds for, that some of that's not just a one-off, yeah. that it actually can build something that becomes sustainable. In the last flying trip we did, we did we raised money for a mass spectrometry machine, which is the first one in Australia of its kind, which is a machine cost about a hundred thousand euro, and it it was the first time that babies can actually have their lungs analysed just by breathing into this machine, whereas previously they would have had to go through invasive you know bronchoscopy with anaesthetic to get that same level of checking done. So they're they're the small things that make a difference. And yeah. this trip now will be to work to build on that machine to fund the researcher that can then do more detailed work around the results that come out of the machines for all the kids. So, so we're trying to build on what we, what we started with. 
Yeah, right. So it's quite a quite a lot of machinery. What are some of the um, what are some of the specialised needs that cystic fibrosis has that maybe other areas of the hospital don't have? Uh, well, specialised needs obviously would things like the allied health things around you know physiotherapy to help them clear the lungs because they um, they can't digest fats without taking enzyme tablets. So they they struggle a lot with their diet. So you know dietitians are very important to help you know get families doing the right thing with the diet. Yeah. Um, yeah, just, exam, just research, anyone that can just do a little bit extra research to help them out. Um, they're sort of the critical needs, really. And, you know, there's sometimes little bits of equipment, certain machines that help them take their antibiotics quicker. You know, often they, they, they inhale antibiotics. So if there are some families that can't afford the machines that might make life much easier for them, you know, we're sort of trying to fund to make life easier for them. Sure. So that'll, that makes that, it cuts down the time they might spend in the, on the antibiotic inhaling from half an hour to five minutes. And, and every day, you know, twice a day, that, that adds up. So things like that we'll, we'll try and raise funds for. You've raised $250,000 on your past trips. Yeah, the last two we've raised that aren't you? The last two trips. That's a huge amount of money. And when you combine that with the amount of money that you're, the other parents have raised, how much are we looking at? We, we, we target between three hundred and four hundred thousand a year. So, I mean, the main fundraising comes every year from a golf day that was set up to, to fund that raise for that fellow that we're talking about. Yep. So that raised about between 140 and 150,000 a year, mm-hmm. which, which is incredible. And on top of that, we then tried, you know, I've done this the last couple of years, I'm not quite sure I'll do it again. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then we have, you know, alternative years we might do a big dinner. So just to try to sort of make up that shortfall. Yeah, right. And yeah. how many people are, are involved in this? There's probably there's three or four parents that have spent a lot of time on it, and the head of the CF unit, Dr. Peter Cooper, he sort of, it was his idea to sort of set up this thing. So, uh, yeah, so he, he's heavily involved as well. Right, so the, the hospital's been quite supportive of you going off and doing this additional fundraising then? Absolutely. Yeah, no, for them it's great. I mean, you know, it's, it's a balance for them because with every unit in the hospital doing their own fundraising, you know, there still is a need for more general general type revenue for hospitals yeah. but of course that's not very sexy or trendy because people want to raise everyone wants to raise funds for something specific yeah but sometimes there is a need just for general funding for a hospital so yeah so it's a balancing act for them but no they're, they're absolutely supportive right so there's a kind of appeal in the fact that you know this is going to specifically children who have CF. it's certainly an appeal for corporate donors you know, corporate donors like to know um what they're going to buy yeah absolutely Sure. Um, and when you're doing your fundraising, I mean, did you anticipate having this level of success? It's quite a, it's quite an extraordinary amount of money. No, 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 not early on. No, absolutely not. So, I mean, the golf days early on raised as much money, but we didn't think it, it would. So then, obviously, that expectation is now there every year. The flying, no, absolutely not. So I had no idea what to expect when I first did it. Yeah. Um, so it, was, it is a bit of a shock to me when, when, when it raised that much money. So it, it is a lot of money. Kind of stumbled upon accidentally this brilliant fundraising technique. Yeah, it is, but how sustainable is it? I don't know, because it, um, it it's a bit of effort, it takes time and effort. Yeah, and uh, so I'm not quite sure what the next step will be after 11 days. You know, I'm not quite sure what I have to do next to try and beat that. There's sure. a, there's a limit to how far you can go. <laughs> <laughs> so if that's the end of the long haul flights, what's next for you in your fundraising quest? I have no idea whatsoever. Um, you know, probably next year they definitely fund it. You know, there's a dinner that we'll do. So again, I'd sort of try to use the same sort of sponsors and encourage them to come along. But that's much harder work. You know, it's uh, organising a dinner and there's overhead, there's costs. So to, to clear, well, you think most of those 
most of those spectacular gala charity dinners, you know, where they have celebrities coming and they're at the, the Hyde Hotel. Most of those would raise about 100, 150 if everything goes really, really well. And that's yeah. with a lot of people putting effort for huge auction items. And so there's an enormous amount of work for a lot of people to get to that. Mm. Whereas, of course, this technique is just one, one flying maniac sitting on a seat, zero overheads. It's a much easier way to raise money. Yeah. Uh, finally, if people want to get behind you, how do they do that? Well, like, there's, a, there's a website, obviously the, the Everyday Hero website. So it's www.everydayhero.com.au and then they can sort of type in my name, the surname Fuchs, F-U-C-H-S, um, and they'll see it. You know, flying for kids for sativa process and obviously any any support would be absolutely fantastic sure and how how are you going towards your target now well i, I had a, i set myself a very very aspirational target of one hundred and forty thousand um to represent sort of one dollar for every kilometer i'm going to be flying which is one hundred forty thousand kilometers <laughs> um i got up to about one hundred and eight thousand so far um so very happy with that so, uh, you know, all the corporate support's been there, so now, now it comes a bit harder, because, you know, even when the community supports it, it takes lots, lots of donations to sort of make up that shortfall. So, Absolutely. hopefully, with a bit more support, I can get there. All right, Matthias, thanks very much for joining us. No worries, thanks, James. You're listening to Triple H Newsdesk, 100.1 FM. Just a correction now, in the introduction to that interview, we uh, incorrectly said that Matthias Fuchs is fundraising with patients. He's actually fundraising with other parents of children with cystic fibrosis. We'll be back right after some more music. Stay tuned, because coming up, we talk to the Karingai volunteer police worker in the mix for a statewide award. This is Perfect Day by the late Lou Reed. Julia Eagles is a volunteer with the Karingai Local Area Command. If you've ever found a friendly note on your car telling you to hide your valuables, it was probably her. Now she's in the running in the volunteer category of the Rotary Police Officer of the Year Award, Declan Gooch reports. She's a familiar name on Facebook to many North Shore and Hornsby residents, but Julia Eagles usually keeps well out of the spotlight. But now the volunteer police worker is up for a major award the Rotary Police Volunteer of the Year. I was gobsmacked. I, I, um, I normally um, fly below the radar normally, so I'm happy to just, just keep working and do my job and keep my nose down. And so when I was put up for this award, I was totally amazed. Ms Eagles is what's called a Volunteer in Policing, or VIP. It's an ironic acronym for somebody who must be Hornsby's most modest volunteer, playing down her chances of winning. I wouldn't have thought so because there's people out there who do a lot more special things than me, I'm, I'm sure. But every month, Julia Eagles puts in about 60 hours to keep Karingai Local Area Command running smoothly behind the scenes. It's a very varied job, ranging from office and administration work to helping out locals on the ground. I help the crime prevention officer by walking around the community car parks and looking for things on display like cash or wallets. I, that, that's interesting because you think you're actually helping point out to someone mm. where they're taking a risk. So I'll just leave a discreet note underneath the windscreen. She does everything from photocopying, booking venues and talks, correcting inconsistencies in posters and leaflets, and perhaps most importantly, she's the face of the local neighbourhood watch group on social media. On Facebook, she's known as Karingai Precinct Coordinator Julia. 
She posts updates and information about local crime and emergencies and is a go-to source for information about local crime prevention and preparedness. The drive to volunteer came from a pivotal moment in her life. I was ill back in 2000 and when you're very ill it makes you rethink your priorities and that's when um, I decided I'd do more community work. Um, and it's left me with pain which I manage with medicine and so I have good days and bad days and I, it's great when you're volunteering because you can put in a few hours here or a few hours there or an hour late at night or whenever it fits in. She was nominated for the Volunteer in Policing category by one of her Facebook readers, as well as Crime Prevention Officer Paul Cleary. This year, the Rotary Police Officer of the Year competition has seen nominations more than double. The awards ceremony will be held on Friday, November the 8th at Darling Harbour. Tickets cost $95, but they'll sell fast. To buy tickets, visit www.sydneyrotary.com forward slash events. Phone inquiries can be made on 9265-0700-9265-0700. Declan Gooch, Triple H Newsdesk. Intrepid, independent, in your area. Newsdesk. Police have reminded parents to keep a close eye on their children after a child fell from a balcony in Willoughby last week. At about 4pm on Friday, the four-year-old was playing with a friend on the balcony of the Willoughby Road unit. A neighbour saw him fall about four metres onto a concrete surface below and emergency services were called to the scene. The child was taken to hospital in a serious but stable condition. Police say that to keep children safe from similar falls, windows and balcony doors should be kept secure and that windows should not be able to be opened by, by more than 10 centimetres except by an adult. Also, they advise parents to keep any object the child can stand on away from windows or a balcony edge. Bushfire victims might get some relief for Christmas after the West Pimble Community Bushfire Christmas Toy Appeal kicked off following the recent fires. Organiser Karina Stafford started the initiative after her friend in Winmalee lost everything in the blaze. She's after donations of new toys, CDs, gift vouchers or books. Unwrapped presents can be dropped off at local schools as well as at Price's Pharmacy in Phillip Mall and the North Shore Gym in West Pimble and Lane Cove. Presents will be collected weekly until the 22nd of November. A new park is set to open in Warunga, but before that can happen, it needs a name. The Geographic Names Board is calling for public feedback and submissions on the proposed name, which is Curtilage Park. Premier Barry O'Farrell has offered support for the name, which is linked to the history of the site. The land was handed over to the council from private hands in 1992 and will be open in late February with a brand new playground. The redeveloped Prince's Street shops in Taramara were officially opened last week at a fete attended by the Karingai Mayor Jennifer Anderson. Pimble Public Schools Band played at the event and Taramara High School singing group The Sound Studio also provided entertainment. The opening included artisan stalls and wine tasting and raised $700 for the bushfire appeal. Warunga Park came alive with the sound of glasses clinking on Sunday when it hosted the Food and Wine Festival. There were food trucks from the city and gourmet snacks and ingredients were sold from stalls around the park, drawing huge crowds from the local area and beyond. There was live music and wine tastings from vineyards across the country. It's partly cloudy and a warm top of 20 degrees in Hornsby and Karingai today. Humidity is at, 60, is at 67%, so it will probably feel a little bit muggy. Expect low 20s and a couple of showers on Thursday and Friday, but then the heat is back for the weekend with 28 degrees on Saturday 
and 31 on Sunday. That's all for Triple H News Desk this week. If you missed part of the show or if you want to hear anything again, the entire episode and individual stories will be accessible via our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Triple H News Desk. Follow us on Twitter. We're at Triple H News Desk. And remember, always feel free to get in touch. We urge you to contact us if there's anything you think we should know. Email newsdesk at triplehfm.com.au. That's newsdesk at triple H, spelt out, T-R-I-P-L-E-H-F-M dot com dot A-U. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you can be with us again next Wednesday from 9am here on Triple H 100.1 FM. Stay tuned for Women's Current Affairs program, Women on the Line. Have a good week, and we'll leave you with Night Moves by Bob Seger. Been listening to a podcast of Triple H News Desk. To get in touch, email us newsdesk at triplehfm.com.au. We want to hear from you. Be sure to tune in again on air at 100.1 FM or catch up online with podcasts like this.